Gospel, the last two chapters, chapter 27 and 28. And while you're looking that up, uh, could I remind you again about next Lord's Day, because there is this uh, great change in the daylight saving time, and uh, this is because of the Americans, and we have to follow along with our neighbors to the south of us. And it's kind of strange, because I haven't even seen a robin this year, I, apart from my brother-in-law. I have normally watched out for the first robin. The cardinals are here, but I haven't seen any robins, and yet we're moving into the daylight saving time for summer. Anyhow, I'll be quite happy when summer comes along. And then could I ask you also, those of you who are here, that next Lord's Day, that you make a special effort to be here, because half of our congregation is going to be in Florida, in the Caribbean, you name it, they're going to be there. The number of people that I know who are going away is quite amazing. Uh, so make sure, if you're not away, that you're here to encourage us in the Word of the Lord next Lord's Day. So please keep that in mind. And uh, probably we will just sit in the two center sections next Lord's Day. So if you could remember that as well. We're going to um, read the last verses of chapter 27 of Matthew Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse number 62. And then we'll read some verses from chapter 28. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. I command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so at the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went, and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. And then over to chapter 28 and verse number 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this, until this day. May the Lord bless to our hearts this reading from his own infallible and inspired word. Amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank Thee this morning for these hymns and psalms that we have been singing together. And we thank Thee, O God, that they all bear record of the greatness of Thy Son, whom Thou hast anointed and to sit upon Thy holy hill. And we thank Thee, O God, today that we serve not a dead Savior, but one who is alive and alive forevermore. And Father, we praise you today 
that up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. And we thank thee, O God, that no stratagem planned by hell and nothing done by people in this world can change the great, effect, the great fact that Jesus lives and he lives in the power of an endless life and that he rose victorious in the body of his crucifixion and that he's coming back again in that same body. And we thank thee, O God, that those who know him shall be received into his everlasting presence. O God, today we pray that thou would fill every believing heart with joy in the Lord. And grant, O God, that we will not be tossed to and fro by the slate of men's hands, but rather, Lord, will rejoice in the fact that we do serve a risen Savior who is in this world today. Be with us now, we pray, and speak by thy power. O God, touch every heart and soul. And Lord, for any who know not the Lord, we pray today they might realize that they do trifle, not with some dead philosopher, but they trifle with the living God. And Lord, thou hast told us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We pray, therefore, that thou would save some precious soul and bring them from the devil's clutches into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Be with us now, we pray, and speak by thy power, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the major news events in this past week has been this documentary film that has been prepared, sadly, by two Canadians. First of all, Simka Jakovic, and he is backed by the Canadian James Cameron, he of the Titanic fame. And this documentary they have prepared is called The Lost Tomb of the Lord Jesus. And the story behind it is that in 1980, a tomb was found in Jerusalem. And in that tomb were ten ossuaries, or bone boxes. And we're told by these people who have put this documentary together that one of the boxes contained the bones of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another one contained probably the bones of Mary Magdalene. And they did some testing and they said that uh, Mary Magdalene obviously was married uh, to Jesus. And there's another bone box uh, purporting to be of Judas, the son of Jesus. And so this is going to be shown tomorrow uh, in uh, this country and in other places. Now the implications of such a thing, if it were true, would be very, very important. Because of Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead then Christianity is absolutely worthless because the resurrection of Christ is the capstone of all Christian doctrine. All the claims that Jesus made, all the Old Testament prophecies, they come to nothing if Jesus Christ died, was buried, and that he faded away in decomposition in some bone box in a tomb in Jerusalem. So the implications are very, very serious. My preaching this morning would be absolutely vain according to what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The faith that you have in Jesus Christ as your living Savior would be vain and worthless. And we who testify to others about needing to be saved, we become false witnesses and in turn we ourselves would be yet in our sins. So you can see 
something like this here is, uh, would have uh, tremendous implications for the Christian faith if it were true. However, there's nothing new. The devil, he is well versed in going over the same ground that he has covered time and time again. You will find, for example, that uh, Charles Templeton, who lived here and was an evangelist way back many years ago, before he turned away from faith and turned away from God, and he had the idea some years ago of writing a novel that was called Act of God. And that novel was based on the suggestion that somebody found the bones of Jesus Christ. And the novel had to do with what would happen in Christianity if such a thing ever happened. Then that was followed not very long ago by Dan Brown's book called The Da Vinci Code. And this goes along the same line, that somebody found the bones of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus Christ was married to Mary Magdalene and so on, and that has been turned into a film. Now we have another one of these called The Lost Tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question comes, should we as believers be troubled by this? Should we be worried by that? And the answer is no, not in the slightest, because what they are dealing with is a lie. It is the devil's lie from beginning to end, and today you have no cause to worry uh, because uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead. He did not uh, die and his bones are put into some bone box and be hidden. The Lord Jesus Christ is very, very much alive. Now I read to you from the last couple of chapters of uh, Matthew's Gospel because there you have the very beginning and the origin of that lie. Because uh, uh, you discover that these uh, priests and uh, the, uh, the Pharisees, they paid money uh, to the soldiers in order to say that when they were asleep, along came the disciples and stole the body of the Lord Jesus Christ away. And if that bothers you, it does not bother me in the least because it is the most ridiculous thing that you ever heard, as we'll show you in just a moment. But first of all, let's consider the iniquity of the exercise that was wrought here at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, that was, of course, to hide the truth. Uh, Jesus Christ had come out of the tomb. And there was there an earthquake. There was uh, an angel come down in shining raiment. Uh, sat there at the tomb, rolled the stone away, and of course Jesus Christ rose uh, from the dead. And uh, so the idea was to hide that truth. Now, the interesting thing was, and this amuses me, and that is that the chief priests, who happened to be Sadducees at that time, and you always remember that because they did not believe in the resurrection of the body, not only Christ's resurrection, didn't believe in any resurrection, so they were sad, you see. So you always remember the Sadducees by that. And the chief priests at that time were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees are mentioned here also who did believe in the resurrection. But these people had the temerity of calling Jesus Christ a deceiver. Because it says there in chapter 27, they went along to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and they said to him, Sir, 
we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. And they want the Pilate to command that the sepulchre be made sure so that the disciples couldn't steal the body away. And these characters, they called the Lord Jesus Christ a deceiver. And then you look at what they did in a short time afterwards. So, um, what had happened was that they went, they sealed the stone, and they set a watch there. And on the resurrection morning, there was a great earthquake. We're told that in the Scriptures. And then we're told the angel, like lightning come down, that he rolled the stone away. And the watchers, or the keepers of the tomb, were told that they shook, and they trembled, and they became as dead men. So when they came to themselves and discovered that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was no longer in the tomb, and so what would they do? They didn't want to go to Pilate because if they went to Pilate and told him that they did not keep their watch, they'd be in serious problem because they could be put to death for such a failure as a soldier of the Roman Empire. So they didn't go to him. So they went to the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and they told them the story about the earthquake and about the, the shining figure and the stone rolled away. They told them that. Now, notice that the uh, uh, Pharisees and the chief priests, they did not deny. They did not deny or try to argue against what the soldiers gave as eyewitness reports. They didn't do that. But rather, they set upon a campaign of deceiving and deception. And that's why it's laughable that they called the Lord Jesus a deceiver because here is a bunch of the greatest deceivers this world has ever known. Now, we have this film coming out and it is called The Lost Tomb. Let me tell you, friends, there is no lost tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one tomb outside the wall of Jerusalem known as the Garden Tomb. And whether or not that is the tomb that the Lord Jesus Christ was buried in, we don't know. But it was certainly one very like that. But the uh, notable feature of the Garden Tomb, there was no body in it, no bone boxes, an empty tomb. I've been inside it uh, some years ago on, uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, so um, there is no lost tomb of the Lord Jesus. And we're told too in history that after the resurrection, the priests and so on, they searched the city of Jerusalem looking for such a tomb. But they didn't find it or find any. But it's funny how that it has to be 1980 before they actually found the tomb. And inside that tomb are these ten ossuaries or bone boxes. Now, the man who found the tomb... Professor Amos Cloner from Israel's Bar Elan University, he argued that the ossuaries are irrelevant to Christian history. Now, what does that mean? From his studies way back in 1980, he knew that these bone boxes have nothing to do with Jesus Christ, whatever, nothing to do with Christian history. They are irrelevant to Christian history. And then... Uh, the biblical anthropologist Joe Zayas, he said, he concurred, and he said that what these men have done today, 
that Jacob Avicii and Cameron, what they have done today is dishonest. Just like you get there in the book of Matthew. So the dishonesty is clear. So uh, that's the iniquity. It was a lie that these people told in Matthew's gospel and what the people are putting forward today in their, their documentary is a lie. We brand it as a lie. And there's evidence that it is a lie. So we don't be worried by lies because the devil, he's the uh, father of lies and we're not concerned about anything that he may say about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second thing we need to look at is the absurdity of the deception. Because it's beyond uh, human uh, understanding that people would be so dumb and so stupid uh, to bring forth a lie that can easily be refuted. Now what they did, uh, they bribed the soldiers. Remember, these characters already had bribed Judas and they gave him 30 pieces of silver uh, to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this portion here, in chapter 28, it says that they gave uh, to the soldiers large money. Large money. Now, the word large there is the word that means sufficient. Uh, so they gave them sufficient money uh, to go out and tell the lie. Now, I would love to be there because you probably had a nice argument going. Because here these soldiers, they're confessing, look, this body is gone. And there's an earthquake and there's this shining figure come down. The stone was rolled away. We don't know what happened, but uh, uh, there's a problem and we're in trouble because of it. And uh, so um, the uh, Pharisees would say, well, uh, uh, you tell a lie. You, you tell that uh, the disciples came along and stole him. And if this gets to Pilate's ears, we'll persuade him. We'll look after him. But they said, but we need to have some money for this here because our lives are at stake here. We could actually be killed. We could be executed. And so this is not a, a light matter. And so uh, we need to have some money. And so the negotiation goes backwards and forwards. Uh, and no doubt that the, uh, the scribes uh, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, they would offer some sort of... Uh, of settlement to do this. And I can see the soul. Oh no, but that's not enough because our lives are at stake here. And so finally it was settled at large money. And so they had this here behind it. Now, <clears throat> uh, the refutation of the thing is carried on itself because they said that the, the while they were asleep the disciples came and stole them. And the answer is, well, if the disciples were, if the soldiers were asleep, how would they have known the disciples came and stole them? The Chrysostom, he argued, he says, what? Uh, you got the stone and you sealed the stone? And uh, you have a guard of soldiers, a watch of soldiers there around the tomb? And uh, you're telling us, he says, Chrysostom says, that the disciples who were exceedingly timid, that when the Lord was arrested, they all fled. You're telling us now that these disciples, they come back uh, to the tomb where there is this band of 
Roman soldiers armed to the teeth and that they're going to, these timid disciples, they're going to come and fight against the soldiers and take the body. And uh, Chrysostom went on to argue that uh, if they did, if the disciples did come back, uh, how would they have escaped detection? Because it is true that in the soldier body, some of them may have slept, but some of them would remain on guard. So how could the disciples come and not be seen? How would they escape detection? And the other thing is, what good would a dead body be to them? Why would they come? The Lord Jesus was buried in a good tomb. It was a wealthy tomb provided by the Joseph of Arimathea. If he was cast aside somewhere, you could see them coming to take the body and give him a proper burial. But he's in the, the grave of a rich man. Why would they come and take him away? And what good would a dead body be to them? Would a dead body be able to kindle intense enthusiasm in the hearts of his disciples, as was seen in later times in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament? And you look at the study there, and you discover that the disciples, rather than being filled with, with a strength and with power, they were going back to start their fishing again, back in Galilee, because their hopes of the future had died with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't understand that he was going to rise from the dead. And so what use would a dead body have been to them? And would that have been sufficient to kindle them with the enthusiasm that they have shown later times in the book of Acts as the church developed and spread across the world? And these men willing to leave down their lives, and some of them did leave down their lives for the cause of Christ. Would they do that for a dead body that they had surreptitiously and deceptively buried in a tomb? Not at all. The thing carries its own reputation. Now this man, Jacob Avicii, he tells us that um, the name of Jesus is on the ossuary. So what? The name Jesus was a very common name in those days, and it is the name Joshua. And so it was very, very common. And uh, uh, there's an expert who looked at this, and he says he does not see the name Jesus at all on the one that they say it's on. He sees another name more like Hanun, not the name Jesus at all. And if the name Jesus was on it, how would anybody know that, that was the Jesus of Nazareth? And they're talking about him as the Jesus of Jerusalem. He was never known as Jesus of Jerusalem. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And why? If they discovered the actual tomb and the bones of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1980, why has it taken 27 years to get out this most stupendous fact? that would destroy Christianity. I had to laugh at Rex Murphy of CBC. He said, I expect the Vatican to close down next week sometime because of this suspendous discovery that they've made. Of course, he's speaking in satire that he's very good at. You remember how that here in the city, just a few years ago, 
we had the James ossuary brought to the museum. And they got cracked on the way over here, and there's a whole rumpus about that, and the thing was proved to be a fraud. And the guy who perpetrated the fraud is before the courts in Israel at the present time. So, this whole thing is absurd. And the interesting thing is, that Jacob of Ike, he is a man who supported the James ossuary. So, you begin to question the morals of this man, and if you look at his name, you can also question his religion too, because I think that here is a man who has a conflict of interests. And the conflict of interests gets him right into Matthew 28. So, it was an absurd deception, and what they are trying to put upon is an absurd deception. The priests, they decide to tell a falsehood, and so has Cameron and Jacob of Ike. Somebody said that Cameron of the Titanic fame, he was the man who wanted to raise the Titanic. And that all kinds of schemes were doing that. And at the same time now, he wants to sink Christianity. Well, let me tell him that he has much chance of sinking Christianity as he has of lifting the Titanic from 13,000 feet down there in his rusty grave at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. You see, these characters are a bunch of frauds. But that brings us to the next part, which is the carnality of the motive. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they knew the truth. They were there. They saw the earthquake. They saw the angel. They saw the stone rolled away. Uh, so the soldiers, they knew the truth, but they were persuaded to lie because of being given large money. They were bribed, in other words, and the bottom line uh, comes down to filthy lucre. The soldiers were bribed, and they obliged, and they uh, told the story that they wanted to get out. Now... This latest film, The Lost Tomb, is all about name, it's all about fame, and it's all about fortune. And it brings us back to Hollywood's difficulty. And that is, if ever there was a cesspool of iniquity in this world, it is Hollywood. Cesspool of iniquity. And uh, in the early days, when, uh, and I can't remember that far back because I'm too young, uh, but way back in the early days when the, when the movies started, that it was a very interesting thing because they hadn't long developed uh, still pictures, which were quite amazing, and then along they come with moving pictures. We actually see people moving, and uh, uh, so uh, in those days it was a new medium, and people were very interested. No matter what they put on, people looked at it because interesting. I saw there, oh, some time ago, uh, a cowboy picture that was made up in 1926. And uh, for some reason, the horses, the horses, they could never, never walk or trot. They'd always gallop. And the whole film was horses galloping across. I think it was a young John Wayne who was in it. And uh, in those days, people looked at that, and they thought it was the greatest thing in the world because it was a new medium. But then they came up against something called 
the law of diminishing returns. Because as they produce their films, that when they get a reaction from the public, and the reaction, of course, brings money with it, when they get the reaction of the public, then in order to keep the public paying, they have to put more and more in to get the same reaction out again. Because people tire very quickly. You don't want to see horses galloping across like that there all the time. You're fed up with that. And then, of course, they moved on to the, the days of the old uh, westerns. The guys with the white hats and the black hats. The white hats were the good guys. The black hats were the bad guys. And white always won. The, the white hats always won over the black hats because good always triumphed over evil. And so in the early days, there was some sort of morality based there. Good always won. But then with the passage of time, people got tired of that. And so in order to keep the money coming in and to keep Hollywood going, they have to look for fresh fields to conquer. So what happens? The good guy, he begins to become not so good. And the bad guy, he becomes not so bad, but a little good in him. And so you get a blurring between the good and the bad, and you get the whole thing into a gray area of morality. So that's the way they went. But again, the law of diminishing returns means that they've got to do something else to keep the people because they get tired of that as well. And so then they begin to look around. And it must be very hard, I'm glad, that I'm not a Hollywood writer or producer because uh, it would be very hard to get a new subject because they've covered nearly everything that uh, could be covered in this last uh, uh, 70, 80, or 90 years. Uh, so what do they do then? Ah, there are some taboo subjects that now we'll get involved in. Uh, so they begin to uh, make their uh, productions uh, more vicious, their violence becomes more bloody, their sex becomes more obvious, and then they begin to go at the taboo subject, which is religion. And they have been well versed, down to the years, in attacks upon Christianity. And you know, that in itself is a blessing. Because it tells you that Christianity has something because if they're not attacking it, if the devil's not attacking it, then it doesn't have anything, but it is under attack. Now you ask uh, James Cameron and Simka uh, Jacobovicki, are you going to do now a, a, a documentary on Muhammad? Oh, not at all, because uh, Mohammedans, they might be, you saw what happened over the cartoons in Denmark, and they might be, they might follow up like they did with Salman Rushdie and cause real trouble. Maybe even kill them. So, we'll not touch Muhammad. But the Christian is soft touched because, you see, the Christian is bound by the law of God and the Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. And so the Christian is a soft touch. And so they move along that line and they attack the Christian faith. But the bottom line is this large money, large money that was paid to the soldiers to lie. And large money in Hollywood 
Well, you've heard of some of the, uh, some of the historical films that they have reconstructed history on. At this stage, you couldn't believe anything coming out of Hollywood today. And the thing that grieves me is that we in our society are dictated to by these characters, these more immoral characters down there, telling us how we're to live our lives and how we're to govern our lands. The world pays far too much attention to these so-called entertainers because, you see, they live a lie because their task is uh, to impersonate somebody else in the film. And so they're living a lie and even doing that. And their whole uh, industry is filled with lying. And the, the bottom line is great money or large money. I would love to be able to hang over Hollywood. They've got that big sign that you see every so often in news items, the Hollywood up on the hill there. Love to put a great big sign up there. What has a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? And I would not stand in the shoes of Jacob of Eke or Cameron on the Day of Judgment because they'll face God someday uh, for the lies that they have told and are telling about uh, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the final point, which is the, the reality of the resurrection. There is no lost tomb. And if somebody comes along and tells you, we have found the tomb of Christ, tell them they're a liar. There's no lost tomb. Templeton was wrong in his novel. Brown was wrong in his novel. But the trouble is, that people tend to take a novel as truth. And so that's what happened down through the years. And Cameron and Jacob of Eke, they are also wrong in what they're doing. And as I said, they have as much chance of the sinking Christianity as they have of raising the Titanic. Now, they've got it all wrong. Because the Lord Jesus Christ did rise from the tomb. The Bible tells us clearly, but now is Christ risen. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know, is one of the best attested facts in history. And you turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul tells us there in verse 4 that Jesus was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me, that's Paul, also as one born out of due time. So what do you got there? In 1 Corinthians 15, you have a listing of over 500 eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ and who knew the resurrected Christ and knew that the one that they saw in the resurrection was the one who was nailed to the cross. Now, do these characters in Hollywood, do they think that they know better 
than over 500 eyewitnesses and they're looking down through 2,000 years of history and they tell us they drop the letter DNA in. Oh, we have done DNA testing. So what? That's put in there to deceive further because, um, for example, what they did, they did a DNA test, scraped something on one of these boxes and they got a result and they scraped something of another box uh, one box was supposed to be the one that Jesus was in, and all that was something to do with Mary Magdalene, and they discovered her entirely different. And so they drew the conclusion, ah, they must be married. Now, if I was to take somebody out of this side of the church, and you're buried in a graveyard not far from here in due time, and somebody over on this side of the church is buried in the same graveyard. You die and somebody comes all later and does a DNA test of somebody here and somebody there. They're different. Does that prove you're married? Not at all. Not at all. That's rubbish uh, to do that. And uh, that's what they do. They put in what appears to be a very scientific uh, uh, study when actual fact it's pure, unadulterated rubbish. Now, Jesus Christ gave a warning. And that warning is found in Mark chapter 13 and in the verse number 21. It said, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were for that man that he never was born. I'm reading the long chapter, chapter 14. The chapter 13, verse 21 and uh, he speaks there, except the Lord, in verse 20, had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. Uh, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he has shortened the days. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. So when Jacob Avicii and Cameron come along and say, here is a bone box. Here is the bones of Jesus Christ. By the way, the bones were buried immediately after discovered, buried again. And so these characters never had their hands in the bones. They are reburied according to Jewish law. All they had was the empty boxes to work on. And uh, so uh, Jesus saying, if they come along and say, look, here's a box and here's Jesus in that box. He says, believe it not, because the Lord is not there. But the good uh, news and the glad tidings uh, of the gospel is that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ is risen. Now is Christ risen. And because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, the implications are that our witness is true, that our preaching is true, that our sins are blotted out, and that our faith is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the living Savior. And so, do you get worried when you hear these characters? You get annoyed at them. You get annoyed because of the temerity of people involving in such blasphemy. But, my friend, you don't worry too much because you know that Jesus Christ is alive and is alive forevermore. But, my friend... If you're here this morning and you know not the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to be careful because the Lord is not a dead philosopher. 
He's a living Savior. And the Bible tells us clearly that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And my friend, if you know not the Lord Jesus Christ today, someday you'll stand before Him. Right now, He is the Savior. Right now, He says, come unto me. And you can respond by the Spirit of God to that and come and be saved by the grace of God. But someday the Lord Jesus Christ will ascend to the throne of judgment because the Father says he judgeth no man but hath committed all judgment to the Son. Someday Jesus Christ will become the judge and you'll face him. That's what it says in Revelation, how the great men, as we saw last week, they call for the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the face of him, the Lamb that sat upon the throne. So my friend, that Jesus Christ is not dead. He's alive, and He's alive forevermore. And someday all of us are going to meet Him. The believer will meet Him as a saved sinner and will be taken to everlasting habitations to be with Him. But the unsaved will meet Him as the judge. And if you meet Him as the judge and you haven't had your sins blotted out, then you have chosen that awful part of going down to the caverns of the damned, prepared for the devil and his angels, the father of lies. Oh, my friend, I would encourage you to come today and examine your heart. It's a matter between you and the Lord. You know whether you're right with God or not. But do ask the Lord to come in and to save your soul and to blot out your sins. And he will. And thank God the Bible is not a lie. Because that's what these men are saying. The Bible is a lie. The Bible is not a lie because it is impossible for God to lie. It has alienated the very nature of God to lie. Because he is the living and the true God. And that can be proved over and over from the word of the Lord. And so today, thank the Lord we serve our risen Savior. He's in the world today. No matter what men may say, to thank God is alive and alive forevermore. Let's bow together in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank Thee today for the fact that we do serve a risen Savior. And we thank Thee, O God, that He dwells in the power of an endless life on the right hand of the Majesty and High. And so any attempt to find a tomb on earth with His bones is a waste of time, is a deception and that is the devil's falsehood and lie. Our Father, we pray today that Thou would bless Thy people, that Thou would cause them not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of either doctrine or practice or, uh, or documentary. Oh, God, help us not to be tossed to and fro, uh, but to rest upon the promises of God that are in Christ, yea, and in Him. Amen. And so bless Thy people. And Father, should there be anyone here this morning that knows not the Lord Jesus, O God, we pray that Thou would draw that soul unto Thyself. We pray that Thou would save that soul. And Father, we pray that ere it is forever too late that they would come to know Christ, whom to know is life everlasting. Be with us now, we pray, and bless us. And as we remain for a little while around the table, O God, we pray, that thou would draw near and touch every heart. Hear this our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to sing as we're closing hymn number 172. Hymn 172, Father of Peace and God of Love, we own thy power to save. That power by which our shepherd rose, victorious o'er the grave. 172, we will be going to our communion service. And anyone who is not remaining for communion may feel free to leave after we sing the first verse. 172.